continue our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at inheriting the promises of God. Inheriting the promises of God. And so if you got a copy of the Scriptures, if you would, turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. We're actually going to be picking up where we left off last week in verse 11 and going down to verse 18. Uh, but let me just remind us a little bit of where we're at. Uh, the past two weeks we've been looking at this second warning that the writer of the Hebrews makes to those to whom he has written, would be, who would be the Jewish believers in the first century. You might remember that these are people who um, had come out of Judaism and they had become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they were the minority, there was tremendous pressures for them to revert back to Judaism, to the temple worship, to uh, all that was involved in that. Uh, There was great family pressure to do that. There was great educational pressure to do that. There was great social pressure to do that. There was vocational job. I mean, the pressure was upon them to say, basically, give up this foolishness of following Jesus and get back on track. Now, you can see the obvious application to us today, whether you're Jewish or whatever you are, um, because we live in a very similar culture today that is constantly telling us, actually, it's not just telling us give up this so-called foolishness. It's actually saying this book is a book of hate. And boy, Drew Brees found that out this week, didn't he? This book is a book of hate. And isn't it just like Satan to take the only book that's the accurate revelation of who God is and how to know his love and to totally flip it and say it's a book of hate? Um, And so it's so applicable to us today. And so consequently, um, the writer here in verse 11 of chapter 5 realizes that there's no reason for him just to continue to talk about the superiority of Christ and how he's a priest like unto Melchizedek because the pressures of the world have distracted them from being full-fledged followers of Christ. They've just gotten lazy. They've just kind of, uh, the priority of Christ has kind of sloughed off. And so he begins in verse 11 of chapter 5, and he goes all the way through chapter 6 with this very strong warning. And, uh, and so what we saw is, we saw that if you want to put uh, kind of the growth curves that we're so used to about physical development, uh, cognitive development, all of those things, in uh, beginning in 5.11 down through 6.3, he kind of puts together this chart and says, here's just kind of uh, the, the maturity of a person. They're born again, they come to Christ, um, and they're a brand new infant on the milk, and they need to be taught the elementary principles of God. Chapter 6, he says there's some foundational things that need to be put in place 
that uh, no longer spend your life in dead things. Spend your life in faith towards God because that's what always adds up. And uh, yes, there's some ritualistic things to go through, uh, but let them be a picture of the reality and, uh, and move on from them. And just always understand that there's a resurrection in the future. And on the other side of the resurrection, there is eternal judgment. Believers will stand before God and be judged based upon what they have done, what is of faith is the gold and silver and precious stone that lasts forever. The things that were done in the flesh as a believer are wood, hand, stubble, they're burned up, and nothing lasts as a result of that. For unbelievers, there's a different judgment after their resurrection, and they experience the consequences of their rejection of Christ as they personally pay for every single sin that they had ever committed during this entire life, the greatest sin of which is rejecting Christ. And so then there's this maturity where you move on and you end up being teachers. Uh, this is just making disciples of other people, part of making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And so being teachers, beginning to eat solid food, and because of practice, uh, our senses are trained to discern good and evil. Now, that is an ideal graph chart, right? Can you say amen? That's ideal. Uh, and what the writer realized is um, some of the people, at least that they were writing to and, and uh, teaching this book of Hebrews to, was in fact they had become dull hearers, or he says, or we'll see at the end of the, his exhortation here, sluggish. And so they'd made a U-turn and gotten distracted. And what he's doing is he's exhorting them to get back on track. But in verses 4 through 6, in chapter 6, he says some of you actually are just pretending Christians, and you're going to end up making that clear by your walking away from the Christian faith, denouncing Christ as your Savior. Now, a couple of things before we move on from this. One is... How do you stay on this path? That's part of what we're talking about. That's part of what this passage will go on today. Uh, uh, here at Calvary, we've captured four things that help describe how you kind of stay on that path. And we'll look and see there's going to be some detours along the way here. But, um, and they are, first of all, that you continue to know God and live your life according to this word. And so there's that aspect of the knowing God. Secondly, that we engage as family in God's church to become more like Christ. We're in this together. We need each other because uh, we're in different places, and that's the way God designed it to work. The third characteristic of someone that continues to mature in Christ is they organize their lives to tell other people about Jesus. That's just a... Uh, a commandment upon every believer, and it's a calling upon every believer. And then in all things, there's always a praise up to God because he, of who He is, and there's a recognition of, I can't live this life apart from God, and so living in dependence upon God through prayer. And so that's how we've characterized how we stay on that path uh, in those four qualities. Now, as we jump in, we want to pick up at, the, at verse 11 there. Well, let me say this before we look at 11. In verse 9, 
through 12, we get how a mature believer should view someone that either has made a U-turn back into sin, they have, uh, they've regressed, and you don't know whether they're a true believer or they're not a true believer. And what is the attitude that a mature believer is to have towards someone like that, that you don't exactly know what's going on, but obviously they've gone backwards, either into a particular sin or a disinterested in the things of God or the church of God or whatever. And verse 9 tells us the attitude to have. We come alongside them and say, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In other words, you shoot straight with them, but you think the best. And you just remind them that God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And you express your desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now I want us to just capitalize on that verse 12 there for a minute uh, because you'll see there uh, the whole point of this is that mature growth curve is stated negatively so that you don't become sluggish or lazy, positively, so you will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now this leads us right into the next section. So let's, let's uh, make two points about uh, what is written up there, particularly the positive part of that. I think, first of all, we need to know that the promises of God are inherited through what? Faith and patience. Now, what does it mean to be inherit something? I think we all know this, but it's always good to repeat what we know, right? What does it mean to inherit something? It means you receive something that was not earned. And you receive it because of the choice of the individual who has earned it, who, who does have it. Now, we're typically used to parents giving their inheritance to their children, or their grandchildren. Uh, very often in the church, we as a local church and other ministries benefit from being part of the inheritance of followers of Jesus who leave funds for the church. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's always based upon some kind of relationship and the choice of the individual who has those things. Now our son Nathan, he and his wife just bought a house in Long Island, New York. And one of the neighbors, when we were back there, came over and was telling us that the guy who was living there was a uh, TV reporter for Channel 5 or whatever it was in the New York area there. And one of the things that he did during his life was he befriended either a bum or a homeless person. And every morning he'd go to the bakery and get a pastry and a cup of coffee and he would bring it to this guy and sit down with him and spend a few minutes with him. Well, when that man died, it turned out he was a very wealthy man. And so he gave his one to two million dollar art collection to his nephew, but he gave $350,000 to this guy who had just befriended him. Now, why did he do that? Because he wanted to. He had it and he wanted to do it. 
We have a Father in heaven who has everything that's good and perfect, and He wants to give it to us. And the inheritance is made known to us through His promises in His Word. So, let's just rehearse some of the promises of God. Tell me some of the promises of God that come to mind. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll come back for you. Come. I have gone to prepare a place for you that where I may be, you may be also. Somebody else? A new body. <laughs> a new body. Ooh, yeah. Anybody from the balcony? Anybody else? My grace is sufficient for thee. Salvation. I will be with you always. His mercies are new every morning. I can do all things through Christ. Peace that goes beyond understanding. Forgiveness. Now, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Because there's probably a thousand different promises in the Scriptures. Those are those are things that God has that He wants to give to us as our inheritance. How do we live in that inheritance? Because it's not just in heaven, right? It's many of the promises that you said, in fact, most of the promises that you reminded us of were promises for right now. Right now, why? Because we're taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. And so it's not a thing of just sucking it up and then enjoying the promises. It's a, it's a reality of living in the promises that are meant for today, which so many of you have, have mentioned. So how do we live in these promises? How do we live in this rich inheritance? Well, by these twin virtues of what? Faith and patience. Faith and patience. Now, faith here is, it is going to be emphasized in the objective trustworthiness of God by trusting the trustworthiness of God. And interestingly enough, patience is added there, which is, is, makes it, uh, well, it, it, it adds a harder piece to it. Because it's one thing to have faith, it's another thing to be what? patient, because patience implies that He will give us the promise in His way and His time. Now, most of us don't have any problem having faith if it's going to happen in the next few milliseconds, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we, we like the microwave Christianity. But there's these twin virtues that cause his children help us to live in this rich inheritance of his promises. The second thing that he makes clear here is that we need those that we can imitate. We need to know what this looks like. I believe this is the, one of the great aspects of growing up in a Christian home. 
I think it's one of the great aspects for those of you that did not grow up in a Christian home or you're out beyond uh, that now because of your age. I think this is the whole point of the body of Christ. We need examples, and I can't tell you how often I visit or I talk to people and I interact with people and I walk away saying, thanks for the reminder of what it means to trust God in a situation that is harder than anything I can imagine, which helps me be patient to trust Him for the things I'm in the midst of. And so we need those that we can imitate through faith and patience. And that's what happens now in verse 13 down through verse 18, is we're told about the relationship between God and Abraham. Let me read verses 13 down through verse 18. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no greater, no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, I believe what God does there is he takes Abraham as this one that we can imitate his faith and his patience, and specifically in 13 and 15, he recounts a particular promise given to Abraham concerning his, uh, that he would have a son, well, that he would be a great nation. And then verse 16 through 18, he kind of talks about who God is and what God did with Abraham. So I think we could sum it up by saying the point of this is God is 100% trustworthy. Now, I know we know that, but I don't think we can say it too often. I don't think we can say this too often. God is 100% trustworthy, and there's three aspects that kind of multiply each other about why he is trustworthy in this passage. It is because of who he is as a person. He, verse 18, he cannot lie. And in verse, uh, wherever it is here, oh, 13, he could not swear by anyone greater because there is no one greater. He is the greatest one, so he swore by himself. So as a person, it is impossible for him to lie. Now, God doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. Jesus said that, right? I am the way, the what? the truth, and the life. But also because his purpose is unchangeable. And, uh, and so look down in verse uh, 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. This is just one of the realities about God, that he has a purpose for every single person's life, and he doesn't change his mind along the way. Now, imagine that. I mean, there's nothing in this world like that. 
But God has a purpose for every single life, which is made known through his promises, general promises, and in Abraham's case, and in our case sometimes, some very specific promises. And he doesn't change his mind along the way. James 1.17 tells us, For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God gives good gifts. He always is doing that. There is no shadow side to God. There is no, oh, I wish I had. There is no, oh, I didn't know they would. There's just none of that. And so his purpose always change, is always the same. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what? For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. So let's not be bragging about what we did to get saved. Because we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which were planned when? Beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. God does not make plans on the fly. His purpose is unchangeable. Now, part of what this means is that he will ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, that he really is the Alpha and the Omega, that he who began the good work will bring it to a completion. And so his purpose is unchangeable. And here we're told that he gives a pledge. He gives an oath. Now, there's some commentary why oaths are used. Because when you're in a disagreement, when someone makes an oath, it brings an end of every dispute. Now, don't you wish that was still true? It was true in the first century. It was especially true in the Jewish culture. In fact, they didn't do contracts as much. Contracts were pretty unheard of. Contracts are based upon what? Distrust. Oaths are based upon trust. You didn't have to sign 50 times. You just made an oath. And in the Jewish community, if you wanted to make an oath to affirm your commit to something, you would make an oath to God. You would what? Swear to God. And in the Jewish community, that meant if you broke that oath, you broke the third commandment of taking the name of the Lord in vain. Big stuff. And so that's the context in which this was written. God, there is no one greater than God. So there came a point in Abraham's life where God, not to prove that he was any more serious, but as it says here, as an encouragement to Abraham, he swore by himself an oath that the promise would be fulfilled. And so there's these three ways that we're reminded of that God is 100% trustworthy. And Abraham, it tells us there in verse 15, having patiently awaited, waited, he obtained the promise. Now, 
I think it'd be good for us this morning to walk through Abraham's life because this is a very interesting commentary and analysis from the Lord on Abraham's life, knowing some of the details. So we're gonna spend a few minutes here and we're gonna walk through some of Abraham's life. I'm gonna read quite a few verses beginning in Genesis chapter 12. If you wanna follow along, you're welcome to. I'm not gonna make a much commentary uh, apart from just maybe some of the timing of what goes on. But if he's a man whose faith and patience is worthy to imitate, because it is by that that he laid hold of his promises, I think it's helpful to know some of the details. So we're told that Abraham grew up in a very ungodly household, literally a household that worshipped many different idols and many different deities. And in fact, he lived in a culture where that is what the culture did. And yet God came to him. He was 75 years old or close to that. He was married to Sarai. She was 65 years old. They still did not have any children. And they were, well, a long ways from what we know of Israel today. And the Lord said in chapter 12, verse 1 to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so he makes his way into what we would know as Israel today. And when he gets to Israel, he, uh, verse 7 the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he, Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he settled in. Now, verse 10. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See, now I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now, what do you call that when it comes to faith and patience? Yeah. Where's God? It came about when Abram went into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake. I mean, he's a brother, right? And gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? 
Why did you not say she is, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Well, go forward some here. And uh, he ends up back up where he was supposed to be. There's uh, some kings that come through, and they take a bunch of people, captives, and jump into chapter 14, verse 14. There's actually, in the end of 13, uh, the separation of Lot and the reaffirmation of the promise. But jump into 14, 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, Lot, and his families. He led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, pursued them as far as Horbah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So this amazingly courageous act on Abraham of Abram to get Lot and his family and actually got a bunch of other people back. In verses 17 through the rest of the chapter, we see his dealing with Melchizedek, which we'll get back to in a couple of verses in Hebrews as well. So the righteous king Melchizedek and his interaction with the unrighteous king of Sodom. Jump over to chapter 15. Few years have gone by. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir, one of his servants there. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, and he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on, and the Lord tells him some other stuff there. Go over to chapter 16. They've been in the promised land 10 years now. Abram is 85. Sarai is 75. Now Sarai, Abraham's, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, now understand their thinking here. When God didn't deliver the promise of a child, Abraham thought, well, maybe it'll be my servant. God says, no, it won't be your servant in the house. It will come from your own body. So the next line of thinking is, okay, it'll come through Abraham's body, but maybe Sarah isn't a part of this deal. So they come up with this other idea. 
to help God out in fulfilling His promise to him. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abraham, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. It caused some significant marriage issues. It is through that that Ishmael was born, who is the father, so to speak, of all of the Arab nations. And so the fruit of that was not good. Go over to chapter 17. Fourteen years later, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, isn't that interesting? He wasn't yet, was he? But God speaks as if it is done. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Oh, really? And I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Who's ultimately the king that came forth from Abraham? Jesus. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And he gives them the sign of circumcision. Go over to verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give her a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And so God changes their names. He gives them the sign of circumcision. Verse eight, chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. It was the Lord as, along with two angels. And uh, after he's a great host to them, look at verse 9. Then they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, well, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind them. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. 
Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have my pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At this appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then we have the whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah and all the stuff with Lot and his two daughters, which brings us to chapter 20. Verse 1, now Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. There he sojourned in Gerah. So he moved back towards Egypt. It's possible there's another famine. It's possible the whole thing, judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, But anyway, he moved back towards Egypt. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in the dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, (laughs) and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Nothing like getting lectured by a pagan, huh? And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this to me? Abraham said, Because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So she was what? His half-sister. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So they cooked this one up 25 years ago. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and sent them away, vindicated that he had never touched her. Chapter 21, Isaac is born, 
And uh, let's just jump over that, jump over to chapter 22. Isaac is probably a teenager, a young adult. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Now take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Burnt offerings were willing offerings. On one of the mountains of which I will tell you, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the land will go over there and we will, what's that next word? Worship and return to you. That's the first time that word worship is used in the scriptures. If you want to get an understanding of what worship is, here we have it. Obeying God no matter the cost. By faith and patience. I lost my place now. Where are we at? What verse? Six, thank you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for I, now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. By the way, that's the same place that Christ was crucified, on that mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and now we get to our verse from Hebrews, and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. It is at this point that God spoke to Abraham in an oath that the writer of Hebrews refers back to. Now, Hebrews, by the way, adds in 
that Abraham believed as he was doing that, that God could raise his son from the dead. That's the faith. That's the place that God had brought him to. So back to Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. When did he do that? After he had gone through, offered Isaac, and God had provided another sacrifice, of course, a picture of Christ. And it is at that point that it says that Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, my point in going through this is, did Abraham's life look like that? Say really loudly, no. Yeah, there was some significant U-turns were in, in there, weren't there? There was, there was times where he did not walk by faith and he was not patient. There was times where God intervened in pagan people to protect him. Were there consequences for his choices and his not trusting God? Absolutely. I mean, some of them we're still dealing with today. And so while there's those consequences, did God get Abraham to where he purposed to get Abraham to? Did God get Abraham to the place that he made promises that he would get him to? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And so will he do it for you, and so will he do it for me, and to each and every one of us who know Christ and will work to faithfully and patiently live and believe in his promises. And so, I want you just to put your name down there in the bottom. Put your name in there. I should have actually eliminated Abraham's name up there and just said, how about God and put your name in there. Is God 100% trustworthy? Is God 100% trustworthy? Yeah. He is in his person. He is in his purpose for your life. And he is in his promises and his oaths, like I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is in his promise, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you. He is in his promises that by faith and patience you can experience the resurrection power over sin. And so, just put your name in there. And let me ask you this as a very practical application. What promise has God made to you, has he made to you through his word, that you need to trust him for today? What are you worried about that you need to inherit the promise of his peace that surpasses understanding? What sin has entangled you, that you need to inherit his promise, that you're free from that sin. What is it that he has given you a promise to that you need to inherit today by faith and what? Patience. Let me give you a moment just to bow your heads and respond to him.
Lord, we want to thank you for giving us such a biography on your working with Abraham. And while it would be easy to put him in a different category than we are, that would be wrong for us to do. Oh, to be sure you had a unique purpose for him. But he's no different than we are. Lord, we want to praise you that you're a God who has begun a good work and who will bring it to completion. And we want to pray that when we get sluggish, we get lazy, we get more enamored with a sin than you as our Savior. Or we, we think we have to help you figure things out and how to do things, and maybe worrying will help that. God, we just repent of those things. We want to be those who will inherit and live in your promises. Because you're 100% faithful, and what you have promised, you want to give to us. So thank you for a chance to walk more fully in that today than we ever have before. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.